inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I'm so glad that you're here. Today we have nine questions and they span everything from how to express anger, dealing with emotional neglect, um, being a survivor of childhood sexual abuse, and just everything in between. And if I sound a little congested, I'm actually not. It's just that we have had two weekends in a row where we were with friends and I I get excited and I talk a lot and then my voice is kind of hoarse. So it will come back, but we were in Vegas for my girlfriend Kim's 40th and then we went out to Houston for our friends. They had Friendsgiving out there and so it was just a lot of talking. Um, But I'm happy to be here with you. Let's jump into that first question. And that question says, hey Katie, happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. It says a few videos back, someone asked a question about anger and how they struggle to express that emotion. Your response to them was something like, Instead of trying to feel the emotion head on, first try to understand why you have a hard time expressing it and get to the root of it. The question was applicable to me as well. And after a bit of journaling and self-reflection, I managed to identify why I have a hard time expressing the emotion. It was mostly extreme and violent whenever it was expressed in my childhood. Very common. So my question is, what now? I understand a thing or two about it, but what's the next step? allow myself to feel it? If so, how? Side note, when I feel angry, I hyperventilate and it almost always feels like a panic attack. I love your work and thank you for being a safe space. Of course, of course. Now we have a comment, another question on top of it about anger, but I want to answer this part first. And the truth is, now that you've understood like why it feels so out of control to you, I would like you to spend some time imagining what it would look like to be expressed healthfully. Because we don't have that blueprint or that experience with anger where it was expressed in a very non-rage-filled or out-of-control way, it's almost like we don't, it's like all or nothing for us because that's all we know, right, is either to express it really intensely or to not express it at all. And so I want you to start journaling or just thinking about contemplating what that middle would be, you know, does that mean that our voice is do get raised or not? Do we name call or not? Spoilers don't. Um, But just considering what that could look like, because what we're going to try to do is we're going to try to teach you what it could have been like and what that middle is. And that's when we'll try to feel it, express it, things like that. Okay. You could even, you know, sit into your car and imagine play out by yourself vocalize what it would be like to express your anger to someone that hurt your feelings or did something disrespectful or any number of things you can play that out if you don't want to write it out we can just imagine what would we say how would we express that you know I'm really angry with you because you said you'd show up for me and you didn't and it really hurt my feelings you know because anger usually is more secondary right it's like a protective emotion so it comes on the scene usually when we feel hurt or vulnerable or overwhelmed Um, but spend some time in that middle and be curious about what it could look like there's no wrong answers we're going to kind of learn as we go and I think um, I have it in my book, Are You Okay? But I'm trying to think of like a if there's a video about it. I know I do have videos about anger, but I think for for this, let's just play around with that middle. 
and just be curious. Just uh, try to guess what you think it would look and feel like. And let's just dig into that for now, because the next step would then be, you know, talk it through with your therapist or someone you trust about like, is this an appropriate response or like, does that seem too intense? Because we're going to think everything's either too intense or not enough again, because that's all we know. And so finding that sweet spot is going to take having some outside perspective. Okay. And then from there, then go out to our, into our life and try to practice that, or we can let ourselves feel it. Because the goal is not for you to feel all or nothing. The goal is for you to be able to experience the anger when it comes up, maybe identify where it's coming from and express it in a healthy way, right? So that will be our next step. Okay. There's a comment on this says, as an add-on, I also hardly ever experience anger. Is that okay? Because my therapist thinks that it is. Anyway, yesterday I was finally able to feel it, but I didn't know what to do with it. Am I supposed to release the feeling? And if yes, how? And how can I experience it more often like a normal person? I noticed that whenever someone is angry around me, I get very anxious, like slamming doors or people just screaming, even if it isn't directed towards me. It makes me sometimes start to cry because I get so anxious. I guess, is it normal to hardly ever experience anger? I mean, the short answer is no, it's not quote unquote normal. But instead of just judging that and being like, well, I need to experience it more, I would be kind of like I'd said to the first, the first component of this question, the few videos back where someone asked a question about anger and I told them to try to like understand why you have a hard time expressing it. I think we might be in that phase. Like, is this coming from the fact that anger was never expressed at home? Or was it like the person who asked the first portion of the question that it was like very intense? Be curious about your relationship with anger. And even maybe imagine you're telling me your thoughts or assumptions or beliefs about anger. Like personally, I've talked about this before. I struggle with anger for many various reasons. But the re- the like reason behind that is that I think it's out of control and it scares me. And I've struggled in my life with like wanting to control things a lot, like my emotions and my environment um, and being a people pleaser. And it comes from a variety of things growing up. But the main component is the anger for anger in relation to this specific question is that anger feels like crazy to me. It feels scary. And so I want you to tell me what you think. Is that the case? Because if it's not, and we're like, no, I'm fine with anger. Just, I just takes, it takes a lot to upset me. Then we dig into why do we think that is? And if it all seems to line up that it's like a healthy response to our environment, you know, our parents always allowed us to express our anger and it was okay. So I just don't feel the need to, you know, express it all the time. Um, Do, if it's not coming from there, you know, where is it coming from? We kind of just have to get to know why we're experiencing this. Does that make sense? Like the fact that you don't experience anger very often is a little suspicious. Does it automatically mean something's wrong? No. So we need to dig into that and be a detective, be curious, not judgmental about where that comes from and why we're experiencing things that way. Okay. Moving on to the next component of this question where the person asks, yesterday I was finally able to feel it, but I didn't know what to do with it. Am I supposed to release the feeling? The short answer is yes. Um, Along with getting to know our emotions and what maybe triggered them, we have to find healthy ways to get them out. This could be through journaling, through talking with someone. And this goes for all feelings, feelings of excitement, feelings um, of resentment and upset. It, It runs the gamut. We have to find ways to identify what's going on for us. 
and then healthfully express it. That might mean that we get to celebrate with our friends or we talk to them about something or we journal about it or we talk to our therapist about it. Either way, we need to kind of get it out. Um, it can also help to use our bodies to get things out. If we've talked about our anger, we've written about it and we're just like, oh, it's still holding us down. It's okay to go. I used to um, always tell my, back in back in the day when we lived in Santa Monica, I used to tell many of my patients to go down to the local high school because they had this cement wall for, I don't know if it was for squash or for just like tennis practice or something if you're playing by yourself. But either way, I would be like, take something, a ball, tennis ball, a soccer ball, whatever, and just kick it into that wall over and over just to get that anger out, express it. Um, because if we keep it inside, then it can turn into anger in, which we know can turn into depression or anxiety or even self-injury urges, eating disorder behavior, all sorts of stuff. And so releasing the feeling, we're going to have to try some different things. Start journaling, start trying to talk about it, and maybe start moving your body while you think about the thing that's upsetting. Um, and how can you experience it more like a normal person? Kind of going back to my first answer of this part of the question, get to know it a little bit more. Get to know your history with it and what you've maybe experienced or witnessed as a kid growing up. Like, what's your relationship with anger? Let's get to know that first, okay? And I think that's it. The fact that you get you get so anxious around it makes me suspicious about the anger that, you know, maybe it was very dangerous growing up, like maybe there was abuse in the home, or maybe people never got angry. So when they did, it felt very scary. Um, it'll be important for you to dig into that and figure out where this is coming from. So then we can heal our relationship with anger and find a way to healthfully express it. Okay. Let's move on to question number two. This question says, hi, I'm a little confused about emotional neglect. I'm intrigued by what you said, that some individuals don't get their emotional needs met. And as a result, they can become emotionally neglected by parents or caregivers, correct? But how How about if we try our best and we are still doing, and we think we're still doing our best, and yet we accidentally have damaged a child without knowing it? That's a scary thought since I work as a nanny. And I would like to do, I would not like to do that to a child, even if it's unintentionally. This concept of emotional neglect is very confusing. Thanks and have a lovely day. You too. Great question. Now, I think there's an assumption that all abuse or neglect is done with intent, meaning that we plan to do it and we do it. That's almost never the case. Sure, there are parents who are like serial abusers or who just neglect their children because they're, you know, there's they're a narcissist and they're too focused on themselves. There could be a lot of different reasons that happens and there are people who do it maliciously. However, I find that most of the time, especially with emotional neglect, our parents do it because they're so uncomfortable with their emotional experience or they have no emotional intelligence. So when you express something they don't understand, they're like, <clears throat> whoa, 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 you know, and they want to kind of ignore it or shut it down or something like that, right? So for the most part, our caregivers do the best they can with what they know. And if they don't have any awareness of their own emotions, right? If they're like so uncomfortable with our emotional experience, they're like, whoa, 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 let's shut this down. Or like, you know, they were told something as a kid, so they pass it on to us, right? There can be a lot of reasons that a parent does a shitty job. And most of the time, like I said, not all the time, most of the time, let's say 80%, it's not done intentionally. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And so how, so the person's asking like, how if we try our best, um, we still accidentally damage a child. I think the best way to ensure that we don't do this is to get to know our own shit. The reasons that parents do it without knowing and the reasons others do it without knowing is because we're not aware. We have no awareness. And so the best way in this specific instance to show up for a child and not not stuff down their emotions to meet them where they're at and to offer emotional support. The best way to do that is when they're expressing an emotion, like they're crying, they're angry, they're frustrated, they're showing you something is to acknowledge what it is and call it out. Let's say they're frustrated. You can say something like, you know, hey there, hey uh, buddy, I see that you're whatever you call your child, but usually there's nicknames, but let's say her name is Lucy. We're like, hey, Lucy, I can see you're getting frustrated. Is that because you wanted to eat faster or you wish we weren't waiting for, you know, try to help them identify and then let them communicate if they're able, depends on their age. But usually let's say, I don't know, around two or three, I guess three is probably closer. Three, they can like communicate a little bit more, better, like they can tell you what's going on within their own understanding and we can support that or if they're crying or or throwing a tantrum we can say wow it, it seems like something's very upsetting can you tell me what it is so I can try to make it better right we identify what it is we allow them to feel it and express it and we talk them through it and we offer some solutions if there are like if they're frustrated about waiting in line we can say I know it, it I'd be frustrated too. It seems to be taking forever, but we'll get there. Um, how about this? And then we can bar- we can bargain with them. If we're able to, to stand in this line and get through without throwing a tantrum, you could have, I don't know, it could be anything from a little extra time coloring, um, extra time on the iPad or watching one of their favorite shows, or if there's a, a treat they like, you get a cookie after dinner. I don't know. I don't really like to reward with food, but I know a lot of children, you know, do enjoy candies and stuff like that. So if that's a treat for them, that's fine. But you can see how we have to support it, allow space for it, help identify it, all that stuff. And that's really how we prevent emotional neglect from happening. Now, every child is going to have different needs. Every child has different emotional responses and reactions, and it's up to us to do our best to allow for them, identify them. We're not encouraging them to throw tantrums in public. That's not what's happening. We're calling out this reaction, trying to help them put a word to it or identify it and then come up with a solution. So like, again, if a child's tantruming, it's not that we're like, you get it out, get it all out. Instead, we're like, hey, you know, Lucy, I noticed that you seem frustrated. Want to tell me what you're frustrated about? And then, you know, I'm frustrated because, you know, this didn't go right for me or whatever they can say. I don't know, depending on their level of development. And then we say, I know that's very, I'm, I'm frustrated too. I hate when I feel that way. 
what would help you feel better? Do we want to stomp it out? You can give them some, you know, like shake it out. Do you want to tell me about it more? Um, you know, do you want to go wait in the car? Is this too much for you? Uh, you know, we can give some options and then let them choose, you know, and don't give options that you're not willing to actually allow them to have. Um, but that can help. Again, usually emotional neglect and abuse aren't done with malicious intent. They're not something that people plan. But due to our own disabilities or inabilities to manage or feel or be comfortable with any of that, right? Our own emotional intelligence is going to play out with our kids. And so that's just kind of a way to ensure that even if it's unintentional, we aren't passing on emotional neglect or abusive behaviors to our children or to the children that we care for. With that, let's move on to question number three. Question number three says, this is a follow-up to a question that was asked a while back about sex in dealing with childhood sexual abuse. You had said something about discovering what feels right and what maybe feels off. After you said that, I noticed that foreplay seems to be easier to stay present for, but when it's taking it further to penetration, I tend to go completely numb and lose feeling. Knowing that, how do you go about fixing it? I have a feeling you'll say something about talking to my partner about it, but even that, how do I tell them? Oh, and oh, by the way, when I get to this point in sex, I just shut down. It's something I want to be able to do with them and not shut down. Even with my therapist, we do talk about how I dissociate, but to try to discuss that with them just seems so hard. Why is sex such a taboo topic? I figured out that penetration and the feeling of someone on me and breathing on me is part of what sets me back to the past. Does that ever go away? These are great questions. Um, Okay. It's great to know if you guys don't know what this person's referencing in the very, I want to say it's chapter 20, but the very back chapter or second to last chapter of the Courage to Heal workbook, which if you are a survivor of childhood sexual abuse, I cannot encourage you enough to grab that book and use it with your therapist. Now, At the end of the book, they go through how to have a healthy sex life going forward in your life. And you're encouraged, I even talk about this in my book, Traumatized, but you're encouraged to create this table essentially of touch that's okay, not triggering, or sexual touch really, like hugging, maybe holding hands, depends on what it is for you. That goes in one column. In the middle column are touch and behaviors and sexual things that might be okay. Meaning they seem okay in my mind, but I might want to try them out and I might not be able to. I don't know. And at the end, the last column is filled with things that are definitely not okay. Like for you, it'd be penetration, having someone on top of me, breathing in my face. No, 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 no. Those are all hard stops, right? So we put together this kind of chart of the things that are okay, maybe okay and not okay. And we talk with our partner about it. Now, the reason that sex is such a taboo topic is because it's how we were raised. It's how media portrayed it. It's how parents or talked or didn't talk to us about it. It's how, I don't know, it's just not part of our basic vernacular. Like even between Sean and I, he was raised in Montreal, which is, if you guys don't know, has a huge French influence. And their comfortability around sexual topics is much greater than those of us in the States or for people I know in the UK. Um, And even in Australia, I would argue too. But so maybe other parts of the world, but I know sometimes there's specific kind of cultures that are 
embrace it more, embrace your own sexuality more. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact, and you can argue against it and it's fine. Um, the fact that when, when we turned to religion and religion was a huge reason people came to the States and settled. And I would argue even in the UK, they had the church of England and we're very religious and a huge component of our religiosity is purity culture meaning that you save yourself till marriage. And if you don't, there's something wrong with you. You did something bad. You're dirty. We don't talk about sex in a real way. We talk about sex or sex education can sometimes just be the answer is abstinence, meaning don't do it versus allowing children to learn about their bodies and what their urges might mean and making decisions that are good for them and encouraging safe sex practices, right? We don't talk about that. When I was growing up, there was no talk of consent or, you know, there was safe sex stuff. I had like sex ed actually, which I, not everyone has in all the 50 states and all schools, but we don't always have that. And there's not always a real conversation around it. And I also grew up in church. So it was like, never have sex until you're married. Um, so I think that's why it's very taboo. And also to and not even to get into like, uh, I don't know, like when I was growing up, you know, like Playboy and like nudie magazines were like hidden in the back or like if you went to, I know this is old, right? Things hopefully will shift. But when you would go to rent a movie from like a blockbuster type thing, there was like a back room for like porn, essentially. Um, And not that children should be around that all the time. That's not healthy either. But the fact that everything's like hush, hush in the back room covered up and no one talks about it, right? So I think it's just the fact that we don't talk about sex in a real healthy way. So that's why it's taboo. Now, how do you go about fixing this? So that's the real question. It's like, okay, this is the thing that's triggering. How do I manage? I would work more in depth as much as you can on those columns and specifically the maybe okay and the not okay, because maybe we could try having our partner lay on top of us, but not have sex, right? And maybe we could try them breathing on us, maybe on our neck or in our, you know, but again, no penetration, not having sex. We might want to try some of these, what we would normally think are like going to trigger us and cause us to dissociate. We're going to have to break them down almost like we're doing exposure therapy because that's kind of what we're doing. And so we need to make a hierarchy of these things that do end up overwhelming us because what's happening is you're dissociating, you're shutting down. And so I want you to come up with kind of that hierarchy and you can do it with your therapist and maybe bring your partner into therapy once or twice. That might be an easier way to have that conversation. Maybe, maybe not. Just throwing it out there. But another component is to make sure that you have grounding techniques that work for you. Grounding techniques are things like looking around the room and how many things are blue, how many things are brown. Tell me what those things are. Going through the ABCs, what in the room starts with A? what in the room starts with B and so on, or stomping our feet, shaking out, doing some deep breathing, you know, snapping a rubber band, holding an ice cube, splashing cold water in our face. Those are all examples of grounding techniques. And I want to make sure you have those because as we move up that ladder of things that could be triggering or overwhelming, we will need to use those to bring ourselves back down so we don't dissociate. Okay. And so dig into maybe more more of the behaviors and the things that really set you off 
and end up causing you to dissociate and see if we can do like a, a portion of it. Meaning, again, like if it is the penetration that's like the most overwhelming, then maybe we just like have them lay on top of us or something. But again, that conversation always going to be uncomfortable. I don't, I think it's just the way that we talk about it. But I will tell you after having a couple conversations with your partner, it will get easier. And you can always end with like, I'd love for you to share things that you like or don't like that I do. Because having that healthy line of communication around sexual activity, not only makes it feel safer, but it also deepens the level of intimacy that you have with your partner. And so if you want to start those conversations in therapy, if you want to write down some things or talk it out with your therapist to figure out how to broach the subject, you can do it that way. But the main goal with the exposures is going to be that ladder of things getting more intense and making sure we have a plenty of coping skills to go along with it. But in order to do that exposure, we're going to have to have our partner on our side and to understand. Otherwise, they're going to think they're doing something wrong because, you know, we initiated maybe the sexual intimacy, but then aren't able to go through with it all the way because the goal is to dip our toe into it and pull out of the sexual interaction before we dissociate. So as we feel ourselves going from like a zero being like asleep, 10 being dissociated, and when we get to like a six or seven, then we want to pull back and we want to remove ourselves for a little bit, use some of our coping skills, calm down. And doing that kind of push-pull can be really difficult on a partner when they don't really understand why it's happening. And so those are kind of, that's my advice. And the short answer to your question, does it ever go away? Yes. But we have to have a partner who understands and we have to make sure we have resources to calm us down. Okay? You got this. I also talk about it at length in my book, Traumatized. And it's also the Courage Tale workbook is beautiful. So maybe pick that up. And you can go, I have it in my Amazon shop, amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash Katie Morton. It's there. Okay. And I don't think you need the newest edition. Don't pay more for that. That's silly. Let's move on to question number four. Question number four says, hey, Katie, happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. It says, I'm a childhood sexual abuse survivor and a sexual abuse survivor from college or maybe sexual assault survivor from college. Also, I've been sober for nine years. Congratulations, that's amazing. However, since I got sober, I really haven't been able to be physically intimate with my husband. It's not that I don't want to at times, but that I always seem to have some sort of trauma reaction, either flashbacks or body memories. Sometimes they actually happen later afterwards. It's been nine years of actual trauma work, and I am frustrated that I still can't be with my husband the way a wife should. How do I get past this? I've done many different types of therapy, even going to trauma treatments, a trauma treatment center twice. What's wrong with me that I can't seem to get over this when there are so many others that can and are perfectly fine being physically intimate? Please help. I love that this rolls off of the other one. The same advice is going to apply, but I want to add another layer. If we've been doing a shitload of trauma work and we feel like we're just you know, you've been to trauma treatment center twice, you've been working nine years of trauma work, you're like, fuck, why is this not working? We may want to try a different style of therapy. And what I mean by that is we might want to dip into the somatic world. My uh, my girlfriend and colleague, Dr. Alexa Altman, wonderful, love her. She does a lot of somatic work. She also does EMDR. Those are two maybe other avenues we might want to approach because We can only talk out our trauma so much. And when I was doing research for my book, Traumatized, I learned that actual just talk therapy only helps about, I think it was like 40% of people, meaning 60% of us are left not feeling any better. 
after doing that. And we're going to need something else like an EMDR, a trauma-informed yoga, or any kind of, there's so many different avenues that we can go through. And the great news is that hope for recovery. So just hope the number four recovery. I think it's just hopeforrecovery.org. Um, but you can just search hope for recovery on Google and it should come up. Um, but anyway, they offer like trauma informed yoga and all sorts of different groups like that. So those could be ways for you to kind of like tap in and see. But I really think another type of therapy is what's going to be beneficial. We probably have done all that we can do when it comes to our talk therapy work. So other modalities, meaning treatment, styles that you might want to look into. EMDR, schema therapy, because we have different schemas, like parts of ourselves kind of, and that could help. Um, Somatic experiencing or somatic based therapy, which is going to be unfortunately a lot of the like, you talk through a little bit of the trauma and then they say, where do you feel that in your body? Those could all be different treatment styles that might give you the resolution that you're seeking. And If one doesn't work, don't feel discouraged. You can move on to the next. I know, and I hate this answer too, because it takes time and it's exhausting. It's been nine years. Um, But I really, I really think that one of those could be more beneficial for you. Sometimes talk therapy can only get us so far. Also, I do think exposure therapy, if you're able to build up your resources to calm yourself down from becoming dissociated or dysregulated, like I was talking about before, we can do that when it comes to this. And I think, you know, working on the Courage to Heal workbook with your therapist, if you haven't already, could be really beneficial. But those are just part of the different ways that I think we can navigate this for you and get you to a place where you can have a healthy, happy sex life. Because we'll get there. We've the just the styles that we've tried have only gotten us so far. And it's probably made things better. You know, I would assume in our life, we're less triggered. But when it comes to being intimate with our husband, we're not able to. And that can be really frustrating, not only, you know, for us, but for him and just our concerns about the relationship. And so let's give some of those things a try. I have videos about most of those treatment, you know, options and modalities. You can also Google them. Um, I talk about them in my book, Traumatized. You can pick it up at your local library if you don't have one, um, a copy or you don't have the money to pay for it. Um, Those could just be some of the ways to, to get those resources so you can have a greater understanding and maybe pick the one that you think is going to be best for you. Okay. And nothing's wrong with you. Again, only 40% of people get resolution from just talk therapy. Okay. Let's move on to question number five. This question says, hi, Katie. Happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. says, I hope you are well. I asked this question before, but I think you didn't answer it. So I'm going to ask it again. That's totally fair. Is there a way to get better if you want to be mentally ill for attention? I don't think I can stop wanting to be mentally ill for attention. When I don't feel good, people come to me and ask me how I feel so that I can talk about my feelings. But I don't want to feel bad for my whole life. And it sometimes really hurts me that I feel bad. And part of me wants it to be even worse and not to stop. Interesting. So is there any way to get better if a part of me, the part that always decides, doesn't want to? And if there's a way, what can I do about it? Thank you a lot for your videos. It's really important work. Of course, of course, I'm glad you found me. Now, this is going to be tricky for you, but here's how we can get you out of this cycle. First, I want everybody to know and acknowledge that it's okay to want attention. We've put such a bad connotation on the word attention, like, oh, you're so attention seeking. Uh, Hello, every human is. Attention is part of our like basic wants and needs, okay? So, 
wanting people to care for us, whether because we're mentally ill, because we're physically ill, because we're always having a crisis. We can do a lot of different things and manipulate a lot of different situations to get that need met. So my homework for you is to, uh, I guess it's like brainstorm, not I was gonna say fine, but it's more like brainstorm ways that you can reach out and speak up when you need to talk about it. Because what we're doing right now in this situation is we're using our mental illness as a way to manipulate people to give us what we need instead of what we should be doing, which is acknowledging the need and getting it met ourselves. We are in control. All the energy you're putting into like not wanting to get better and continuing to feel terrible could instead be put into learning how to talk about what we're experiencing and how to reach out. Those are going to be key to building our resilience. What we're doing now is not building any resilience. And that means that we're going to be more vulnerable to emotional upsets in general. And if people aren't around to support us or ask us how we're doing or people that we know, then we could find ourselves spiraling out. And I don't want that for you. I want you to feel more in control of what's happening for you and to you. Therefore, we have to get better at knowing ourselves. We have to acknowledge when we're feeling like shit. And instead of acting like we're feeling like shit until people ask us, I want to encourage you to reach out and speak up and to go to the people who we feel safe talking to and say, hey, I'm having a tough time. I just want to talk to you about X, Y, or Z and do that because that's way healthier and that's way better for you. And then that means that you'll be able to recover and still speak up and talk to people and get the attention that every human needs. Does that make sense? I hope so. Because I understand that this is the way that you probably have gotten your needs met this way for a huge chunk of time. And it might have been even in childhood, you were emotionally neglected or possibly abused. And so we don't, and neglect is abuse, by the way, but I'm just saying different types of abuse. Um, so we might not know another way to get those needs met. And that might be the work in therapy is figuring out other ways to get that need for attention met because there are tons of other ways. We just have to try them out and we have to practice and we have to get better at reaching out and speaking up and not trying to manipulate situations so that others will do it. Because we already have faith. We already have evidence that they do care for us. They will reach out and ask, but I want you to do that because otherwise we're kind of like holding on to our mental illness instead of doing the work. Okay. Let's move on to question number six. And that question says, hello, Katie. Hello. Is it possible to go into fight, flight, freeze response in therapy? Yes. Is it possible to be all three at once? We will talk about that. In my last therapy session, I got so angry because it felt like my therapist really invalidated me. Oh, I'm so sorry. When I get this angry, I feel like I can freeze. And although I see him talking and I hear him, it's as if I forget what he says straight away. Yeah, because you're not present. You're probably dissociated. It's like it doesn't go in. I get to the point where I'm still and I'm trying to keep calm, but on the inside, I'm furious. I told him to stop talking and I was quite blunt with him because what he was saying wasn't helpful. And if anything, it was like he was pushing me. I ended up walking out, which is something I didn't expect to do. The reason I feel I did all three responses was because when I walked out, it was like I had tunnel vision. I looked down and in front of me, I avoided people on the way out and I took the fastest route out of the building. The flight response is because I openly and bluntly told him that I was angry and that I wanted him to stop. 
Oh, that's the fight response. Sorry. The freeze was because I did freeze. It was like I barely moved. Even though I'm constantly fidgeting, I do have ADHD. Also, would any of this be classed as dissociation? Yes. In this situation, how would you deal with this? How do you manage a client who is really angry? Thank you for all that you do. Okay. So our fight, flight, freeze response is technically called our stress response, and it is triggered through our limbic system, um, which houses our amygdala. And it's our body's way of, it triggers this response, this stress response as a way to keep us safe in a threatening situation. Now this can get triggered obviously for a lot of different reasons. Like if we have a trauma trigger in our life, um, in our environment rather, then that can be triggered. Then that triggers us and we push ourselves into the stress response. Okay. Or we can have something happen, like we can be threatened emotionally, physically, or whatever, and we go into it as well. So overall, any of these responses can be the stress response. And yes, we can have them all within the same situation. We can just have one. We can feel them all at the same time because it's all just part of that survival instinct. And we could, like for many of my patients and even myself, Sometimes you try out a few to see what your options are. Like you might try to leave and then if someone like blocks the door or you realize it's going to be harder for you to leave, then you might decide you're going to fight. Or let's say you try to fight and you're immediately overpowered, then you're like, well, my only option is like freeze. Or we could go into fawn, which is like extreme people pleasing. So it's almost like we're doing, these are just our tools to try to get us to safety. So it's very normal for us to go through them, you know, one than the other all at the same time. I honestly believe that freeze itself is when we dissociate and feeling them all at the same time, I think is when we kind of feel that extreme dysregulation, which can cause us to have a panic attack or cause us again to dissociate. I think dissociation is mainly attached to freeze or, I mean, yeah, I would argue it's not really attached to fight, flight, or fawn. I think it's mainly attached to freeze or feeling them all at the same time because it's that extreme overwhelm when our system, we don't have any way to cope. Our system feels completely dysregulated. That's when we pull the ripcord on reality and we're like, oh, and we have to either remove from self, depersonalization, or remove from environment, derealization. And the fact that you couldn't hear what he was saying and you couldn't log it away to memory, that to me just screams dissociation. Okay? Now, Hopefully that explains that and why we kind of can go because our, again, just remember fight, flight, freeze is our stress response and the goal or the the job of our stress response is to protect us from threat and to get us to safety, okay, physically, emotionally, whatever. Now, when it comes, so the, yes, it would be class dissociation. When it comes to managing a client who's really angry, my best advice, I guess the way that I do it in my office is I acknowledge what's happening First of all, I would have stopped and I'm, I I don't know if he's not that great at reading you, but I usually pride myself on being able to tell when my patients are starting to become dysregulated and try to pull them back. Sometimes I will let my patients go into fight, flight, freeze because I want them to try to use their tools to pull themselves back. Um, But usually I I pride myself on noticing that it's happening and drawing them back and ignore, if I'm talking, I'm like, I must've said something triggering. Let's take a pause you know, and then have them do some grounding techniques and then I'll ask follow-ups about it. But let's say I miss all of this and I've pushed a patient too far and they're angry with me. I try to prompt a conversation about it. But again, the first step is always in the calming down. So acknowledging it happens, I need to shut up 
And then I need to push them into and push being, I mean, I just mean like encouraging them to do grounding techniques. So I might say, you know, can you feel your, your butt in the seat or your back against the back of the couch? Or can we stomp our feet? I might demonstrate, I might do some four by four breathing with them. I might have them look around the room. It depends on how much they're able to participate. Um, obviously a patient can always just get up and leave just like you did. I've never had that happen, but I would allow it and I would probably follow up with them later just to make sure they're okay. Um, Cause then maybe by then they've come back down and they're able to tell me what was wrong or what I did. But th- that's really how I manage being angry with a therapist is okay. It's something that happens all the time. It's just, I, I think the goal or the, my personal goal is to, to notice it or acknowledge it happening before it gets out of control so that we can stay in the present and not dissociate, not go into fight, flight, freeze, maybe quite so intensely, if at all. So we can stay in that, like what I call wise mind space, where we're able to talk about what's happening and not be fully in emotion mind where we're like lashing out. And so that's really how I deal. And if a patient is really upset, I would just sit and allow them to express it to me. Um, But again, the first thing would be like grounding and calming to make sure they're present and we're able to work through it. Okay. I hope that helps and makes sense. And that's a great question. Dealing with anger in therapy can be really hard, especially if we grew up in a home where we didn't really see anger or the anger that we did see was really intense or volatile. Um, It can be hard for us to manage and go through it, but that's why therapy is so beautiful because we get to express different emotions, different situations with a therapist. We get to work through it. Okay, let's move on to question number seven. This question says, hey, Katie, can you talk about missing a therapist while seeing a new one? I miss my old therapist quite frequently. I'll remember something that we talked about in session and just think, man, I wish I saw her or I wish I still saw her. For context, she was a doctoral intern at my university. And after after she finished her year there, she left. It doesn't bother me. Like it doesn't make me upset or anything, but it makes me sad sometimes thinking that I'll never get to see her again. My best advice for this, because I had this too personally, Rebecca was my therapist through um, undergrad and part of my graduate school. And then they were revamping the, th- the therapy center, or I think it was just the health center, they called it, at Pepperdine. And they wouldn't allow her to do her programs anymore. And they essentially like pushed her out. And so she was like forced to retire. And she was upset about it. And I was upset about it. Obviously, I only had like a year left of school. And I was like, Why? And so forever, I missed her. And I still, she was such a good fit for me. And I think the best advice I have for moving past it is to not only acknowledge it personally and write about it and talk about it, because it helps to like, at least acknowledge and walk walk through the experience and give ourselves the space to grieve. Because it's okay to miss them. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to to talk about it with your other therapist, that's a great opportunity to be able to process it through with your current therapist. They're they're there to help you work through things. And I think part of our therapy process is, you know, unfortunately, some of that grieving when we lose a therapist, they move away, they leave a clinic or whatever, right? Like with mine, she was forced to retire. Um, It's sad. And I think the more we ignore it, the more it's going to come up. And so I would encourage you to talk about it. It might even be in your own work, journaling about the work that you did together, journaling about what you learned from her, with her. Doing that will help you at least process through it. And then just know that feeling sad and missing her is okay. It's okay to wish you still saw her. There's nothing wrong with that. It's kind of just part of being a human. It's part of having a a therapist that you cared about. And 
I might even encourage you while you're, you can be sad and like think about, oh man, I wish I still saw her. It's also really healthy to acknowledge all the work you did together and how grateful you can be for having that relationship and digging into that. Um, and that's really it. It's okay to miss the therapist while you see a new one. There's no judgment around that. I wouldn't be offended if I had a patient who's feeling that way. And I don't think any therapist out there would. It sucks when we lose that relationship. Those relationships can be so incredibly healing and important and just, yeah, it's hard to lose them. So I, I feel you and I get that. And just give yourself an opportunity to be in it and write about it. Talk about it with your friends, your family, your therapist, whoever you feel safe talking about it with. Um, yeah, don't feel the urge to just rush. I want to say it took me maybe three, four years to get over Rebecca. And I saw her for three or four years. Um, that's my own process just to give you some idea. So don't rush it. It's okay. Okay. Let's move on to question number eight. And that says, hi, Katie, could I have made up my thoughts and feelings? Hmm. I'm sure my feelings are real every time I feel sad. But then when I feel okay again, I'm convinced I just made those moments up. And they never actually happened. So invalidating. I really want to help. Oh, I really want help for my depressive thoughts. There it is. We'll talk about this. But I feel like I can't accept help because I'm so conflicted about whether or not it's truly there. I hope this makes sense. Thanks for everything. Yes, it makes sense. And 100% without a doubt, you have depression. Okay, here's why. Depression is like, what's uh, emotional vampire. But unlike those people that we talk about that like, you know, toxic people who like suck all our energy, depression sucks all our joy and snuffs out any color or light in our world. It's like makes everything dark, terrible, horrible. We hate it bad. It only allows us to feel and believe that bad things exist and will exist like in perpetuity, right? It's just like the future is bleak and terrible. That's not everyone's experience, but that it, when it comes to depression, but that is incredibly common. Right when I read this, before I read about the depressive thoughts, I was like, oh my God, depression. Because thinking that you can only have bad thoughts and feelings and that you make up these good moments is clearly depression. And so I just want you to hear me out when I say that, because that's why you deserve help. Also, uh, FYI, we all deserve help. We don't have to wait until we feel totally shit and like our world is bleak and black and nothing's good to get help. We should honestly all, in the same way we would go to a doctor to get a physical, or if we started to feel sick and it wasn't getting better, the same should apply to our mental health. We need to reach out sooner rather than later. And I say that as much to myself as I do to you. So what you're experiencing, this like inability to accept or acknowledge positive emotions is a key component of depression. You can look at like the diagnostic criteria, even though the DSM is not the end all be all, but one of the main criteria, well, I guess two of them. Number one is that we feel a depressed mood most of the time, like down. We don't, not, it's making that so, right? It's creating that by not allowing you to actually acknowledge and accept those positive emotions. And then the other is, anhedonia, where we don't enjoy things that we used to enjoy. It won't allow it. It's like you didn't enjoy that. That's a lie, right? So you can see how this is depression. And as far as the diagnosis goes, two weeks for most days, boom, you've met the criteria. You know, changes in sleep, appetite, all that other stuff can come along as well. But I just want you to know that, yes, it's depression. Yes, you're deserving of help. And I encourage you to reach out as soon as possible. And our final question, question number nine says, Hi, Katie, I was wondering if you could talk about the difference between depression 
with anxious distress and bipolar disorder, gladly. I've struggled with depression for several several years. Wow, sorry about that. <laughs> the anxiety portion comes in waves, but is almost always in response to something very stressful happening. I recently read more about bipolar disorder and went down the rabbit hole of wondering if I could have that instead. Could you please explain the difference between feeling anxiety while depressed and a hypomanic state? I don't really feel as though all of the symptoms of bipolar fit for me, but I can't stop wondering which is causing more anxiety. As a side note, I am in therapy and do plan on bringing this up. Thank you. Okay, great question. Now, just because I find this fascinating and it's important to know, anxiety and depression, I want to say it's on this side of our head, they find that it lives in the same region, right next to one another, like neighbors. And so they toggle back and forth. Ooh, I feel really anxious. I don't feel so depressed. Ooh, I feel more depressed. I don't feel really anxious. Or I feel them at the same time. And oh, that's super uncomfortable. And is honestly, as a therapist, a really scary place to be because that's when my depressed patients could possibly attempt to take their own life. And it's because we feel so agitated and have all this energy, but we also feel like shit. So make sure you're telling your therapist about this happening. Now, the huge difference between depression with anxiety and bipolar disorder is that mania experience. Okay, so let me explain bipolar disorder. Now, we can feel anxiety, but that is not hypomania or mania, okay? We do, in bipolar disorder, we do have major depressive disorder. So we do have depression. That is a component of bipolar disorder, both one and two. Okay. And the main difference, if you're curious about bipolar one and two, is that if we ever hit mania, it's bipolar one. If we have hypomania and depression, bipolar two. Okay. So once we hit mania, it's bipolar one, period. But if we don't, bipolar two. Got it? Okay. Now, the symptoms of bipolar disorder and the big difference that I want you to understand is that anxiety is not mania. Even hypomania, they come along with this uh, these flights of ideas, we can feel very motivated, even if it's agitating, we still feel like we're getting a lot done. And these ideas are great. And we can get really excited. And the flights of ideas is almost like, do you ever get a, all of a sudden you have like an epiphany or like, oh my God, I have such a good idea. And you want to write it down. When we have bipolar disorder, those ideas come so fast that we almost can't even write them down. And when we're out of our hypomania or manic episode, we look at our notes and we're like, it doesn't even make sense, right? It's like the ideas are coming so fast and they're not even fully put together or coherent. And that energy that we feel, unlike anxiety energy, anxiety energy is like uncomfortable. And we're like, ugh. when it comes to mania and hypomania, it's not this, it's not that same type of discomfort. It, I'm, I wonder if I'm doing, I hope I'm doing this justice. It can be uncomfortable and bipolar, but we don't feel the need to sleep. We usually talk really, really quickly. They call it pressured speech where it's like people in our life can't get a word in edgewise. We talk kind of like this and it'd be just so fast. And I'm so excited. Oh my God, there's so many good ideas, right? It's almost like those flights of ideas coming out our mouth. We don't have that in anxiety. So this kind of out of control feeling that comes with bipolar disorder does not come with anxiety. Yes, anxiety is uncontrollable worry. Anxiety is more, what's the way I want to express it? It's like, 
I get, I don't want to say discomfort because yes, I know mania and hypomania can be uncomfortable as well. But anxiety is just this uncontrollable worry where in bipolar disorder, it's uncontrollable, like flights of ideas. And we could have paranoia, which is different. Paranoia is like this illogical belief that something's going to happen or someone's watching us. Anxiety is like, oh my God, I did that thing 10 years ago. I can't even believe it. Oh, I'm sure they're thinking about me. It's that like self-deprecating worry thoughts. And I have videos about both of them that hopefully break it down a little better. I feel like maybe I'm not doing it justice, but it's the flights of ideas, the pressured speech, the not the lack of need for sleep. When we have bipolar disorder, usually the way to tell we're ratcheting up into hypomania or mania is like, oh, I've only been sleeping like five hours a night and I feel great, right? Also, our appetite can go away. We can be like, I don't need to eat. I have, I'm feeling so great. And we, we like kind of feel good. And then there can be discomfort that happens at some point, but it's usually this like, we ratchet up where anxiety is like this, this hanging around concern about the past, concern about the present. There's none of this like flight of ideas and we do need to sleep. We might struggle to sleep, but the difference is struggling to sleep in anxiety and depression is different from feeling like we don't need it. Okay. I know that's difficult. I hope I like cleared that up. If you have follow-ups, please feel free to ask them again, but I hope that helps you understand that what I believe you are experiencing is bipolar or not bipolar, is depression with anxiety, not bipolar disorder. If you had bipolar disorder, you would be telling me that you feel this like ratcheting up. You don't feel like you need to sleep. You you feel like you have so many great ideas. You can't even get them out fast enough. You know, people tell you you're talking too fast. Maybe you want to spend, you can spend more money, be really impulsive. Anxiety doesn't come along with those, those things, you know? And if I think we really are honest with ourselves, we can see and feel the difference, Okay. I hope that's clear. I know that was a little tricky. Um, But yeah, if you have follow-ups, let me know. Thank you all so much for listening and watching. Thank you for asking your questions. Like I said last week, there haven't been a ton of questions for the past two weeks. So I think it's time to squeak one of yours in. If you've been holding on to them, now's the time to ask. But I love you all. Have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your week. And I will see you next time. Bye. Bye.